Hey everybody, it's your boy, Dr. Mark Liss, back at you with another episode of the Primary Care Podcast. Uh, today, before we get into the episode, we're going to uh, hit up the primarycarepod at gmail.com on gmail.com inbox. If you have any questions, concerns, uh, topics you want to discuss, uh, throw us there, throw us a line there at primarycarepod at gmail.com. Uh, or if you just want to throw me a joke, I'd read it online. Uh, so speaking of, uh, anonymous uh, viewer, sorry, uh, listener, uh, sent us a joke today. Uh, Dr. List, I have a joke for you. A man uh, brought his wife to get tested for coronavirus. Two days later, he gets a call from the lab. The doctor says, Sir, I'm sorry to inform you, but your wife's test results may have been mixed up with another patient's. We're not sure if she has COVID-19 or if she has Alzheimer's disease. So the man says, What am I supposed to do with my wife now? The doctor says, Well, I'd recommend taking her for a long walk and leaving her. And if she finds her way back home, don't open the door. All right, uh, let's get to it. Bob, hit it. The Primary Care Podcast is written by a family physician for an audience of other physicians, nurse practitioners, physicians, assistants, residents, and medical students interested in primary care topics. This is not a podcast for patients. It should not be used as medical advice. This is also a personal podcast produced on my own time solely reflecting my personal opinions. Statements of this podcast do not reflect the views or policies of my employer, past, or present, or any other organization with which I may be affiliated. Thank you for listening to the Primary Care Podcast. I'm Dr. Mark List, here to bring you the latest news, guidelines, and updates from primary care sources around the globe. Keeping it under 15 minutes long because you're in a hurry and I'm not that smart. Well, welcome back to the podcast, pod people, uh, pod girls and pod boys. It's your boy, Dr. Mark List, uh, hitting you up with another episode of the Primary Care Pod. Today, uh, Primary Care Pod today, we are going to talk about a geriatrics, old people medicine. Yes, my favorite. Um, and even though all, a lot of you are groaning because, you know, geriatric medicine is hard, this is an incredibly important topic. I think I'm going to label today's uh, title of the episode something like let's stop killing old people um, and not have it be about COVID-19 because uh, today we're going to talk about adverse medical adverse events, adverse drug outcomes, adverse uh, outcomes when people are prescribed inappropriate medicines. And today we're going to look at a recent study, which is going to trigger a whole long discussion uh, about this topic. So let's talk about the article first. Okay. Uh, so the, fir- the article is uh, from clinical investigations, or sorry, this is from uh, JAMA clinical investigations. Uh, both new and chronically potentially inappropriate medications continued at hospital discharge are associated with increased risk of adverse events. So first of all, number one, what a absolutely horrendous title to an article. I mean, Listen to that garbage. You're an author. People are going to, that's the first thing that patients are going to see. People are going to see doctors and and PAs and NPs are going to see is your title. And both new and chronically potentially inappropriate medications continued at hospital discharge are associated with increased risk of adverse events. I mean, you got to have something snappier than that. Okay. Sorry. Danalia Weir, Todd Lee, Emily McDonald, and Robin Tamblin. You guys got to do better. You guys, you got to do better. Okay. Um, so this was just uh, recently. Uh, I'm trying to think here. Uh, this is 2020. Wow. Journal of American Geriatric Society. Uh, that's where it was. Sorry. Uh, in 2020 here, uh, just recently, just came out about a month ago or so. And what this study looked like, uh, what this study looked at was looking at all patients, or not all patients, but uh, 2,400 patients, so a big N here, uh, that were discharged from the hospital, and what percent of them were discharged with potentially inappropriate medications, okay, and 
how many of them were new versus chronic, meaning how many were continued from admission versus how many were new on discharge. And how many days or how many, what percent of these patients developed an adverse drug event within the 30 days following discharge? Okay, whether that were uh, emergency department, rehospitalized, or or died after discharge. So uh, this is relevant because polypharmacy and potentially inappropriate medications is a huge, huge, colossally massive deal for geriatric medicine. I would argue, right, when our patients get old enough where cancer screenings no longer matter, they've already begotten, they've already begotten, they've already have gotten all of their vaccinations for the rest of their life, right? So we're not doing any more cancer screens. We're not doing any of that other stuff. 90% of our job in primary care should be not killing patients with medications, right? Not causing adverse drug events that are going to cause them to fall down, go boom, break hips, and die, right? Uh, and I feel like that's that's what the answer should be for 90% of medicines. Take away inappropriate medicines, change inappropriate medicines to better medicines, and watch out for drug-drug interactions, right? So we're going to talk about some tips and tricks on how to do this, but I think this is a massively important topic when it comes to geriatrics. I'm simplifying geriatrics. I shouldn't say 90%, but a big chunk of the job should just basically be doing medrec and medrec and medrec and medrec. Okay, so uh, in this study, again, the end was 2,400 patients, okay? And at the time of discharge, okay, 66% of these patients were prescribed at least one potentially inappropriate medication. All right, so this is this is not this is just looking at hospitalized patients. And this was in Montreal, Quebec, Canada, etc. Uh, so this is this is uh, only in Quebec, right? And looking at tertiary care hospitals. Okay, sixty-six percent of patients prescribed one potentially inappropriate medicine at discharge. Okay, forty-nine percent of those were potentially inappropriate prior to admission. So these were things that primary care had them on prior to admission, got admitted, got discharged, continued, right? 49%. And 31% were prescribed at least one new potentially inappropriate medication. A third of all hospital discharges come away in this study with a new potentially inappropriate medication. So what are we going to be talking about? We're going to be talking about med rec at discharge of your discharge patients, of your hospital follow-up patients, being step number one. Granted, don't, forget about rechecking labs. Forget about those. That's important. Don't forget about that. But put that on the back burner. Put it on the back burner about reordering imaging studies. Put it on the back order about, you know, uh, you know, talking about, you know, long-term recovery from whatever or, or things. Number one, MedRec. Number one, MedRec. Number one, MedRec. Number one. Okay, so... Uh, 9% of these patients that were discharged experienced an adverse drug event within the 30 days after discharge. And 36% of these patients in the next, whatever, 30 days, visited an ER, were rehospitalized, or died. 36% of patients. Crazy. Crazy, crazy, crazy. Okay, so um, what we're going to look at now um, are the types of drugs in this study that they found, uh, and what they use for their what they use for their evidence about what would potentially um, what were potentially good or bad drugs. Uh, these are the three things we are going to talk about. Number one, the beers criteria. Number two, the start stop criteria, and number three, choosing wisely. All three are fantastic. If you don't know these drugs, I don't have them all memorized, but in general, 
we should be thinking about these drugs. Uh, if you are a learner, there there is a $9.99 beers criteria, $9, $10 basically card, uh, beers criteria, single pocket card. Stop has, uh, we'll get to it, stop and start have their own little criteria. But choosing wisely, also super duper important. So at discharge, okay, at discharge, we're going to be looking at uh, a couple of different classes in this study, the top five, right? Top five, number one, benzos. Now, to be clear here, these are inappropriate because benzos obviously at risk for falls and long-term uh, chronic long-acting benzodiazepines such as diazepam, uh, clonazepam. They also have in this category uh, benzos without epilepsy or anxiety in the diagnosis. So some of these, again, if maybe the doctors were better at uh, using the problem list and saying why the patients were on a benzo, but oftentimes this was used for short-term anxiety and then it was continued or was used as a muscle relaxer, which is inappropriate. Um, and it wasn't being used in short-term, being lo used long-term. But 25% of these patients uh, were prescribed benzos at discharge, which is a shockingly high number for elders, in, at least in my opinion. And then a uh, number of patients that these were new prescriptions. So 7% of patients were, were given benzos on discharge and continued on discharge that were new prescriptions, 7%. So you can knock out 7% by just discontinuing those because those were new prescriptions. Uh, the next biggest category will, will surprise nobody, and that is PPIs, right? PPIs without GI hemorrhage or an active peptic ulcer, okay? So omeprazole, pantoprazole, lansoprazole, all the esomeprazole, et cetera, um, 8% of all patients and 4% of new prescriptions at discharge. So 4% of people had a new percent of had a new prescription for a PPI. So again, stop a PPI, stop PPI. These are usually started uh, in the hospital. Stop it, stop it, stop it. Um, COX-2 inhibitors in patients with hypertension, um, Celebrex or Celecoxib, uh, 5% of all patients at discharge, which is surprising. I don't see it that often, so I'm a little bit surprised it was that high. And 4% of new prescriptions. 4% of patients, it was a new prescription. Opioids without cancer, who also have delirium as a diagnosis, shockingly high, 3% of all patients. Uh, alpha-1 blockers, so tamsulosin, for example, that's a big one that we use all the time in old guys with BPH. But this is specifically in patients with hypertension without a diagnosis of BPH. So again, when you talk about these studies limitations, one of the reasons why these numbers are probably very high is the hospitalist didn't click, didn't use their problem list, didn't say that they had BPH even though they were on an alpha blocker, and therefore it gets flagged as inappropriate. So that was 5% of all patients and 3.6% of new prescriptions at discharge. Which again, if it's new prescriptions at discharge, you'd assume that they would diagnose this new BPH, new urinary obstruction, new bladder outlet obstruction, etc., so it's a little bit atypical. Atypical antidepressants, atypical antipsychotics, excuse me, atypical antipsychotics in patients with delirium without schizophrenia or bipolar disorder. Okay, so again, some patients are given uh, inappropriately, given, uh, you know, Haldol, for example, or other medications uh, for delirium, which are no longer recommended according to anybody. And yet 2% of patients from this study were discharged on atypical antipsychotics from the hospital. Again, whether that was intentional or unintentional, it is happening. It is happening. It is happening to your patients. It's happening to my patients. And so on discharge, we have to be really super cautious about anything that was started new, anything that was changed, and even look at the medications list to look at things that are inappropriate or, or appropriate. Okay, so let's back up here because obviously this is a big, 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 big deal. Big, big, big deal. Okay. And so when we look at 
beers. So uh, choosing wisely, everyone should read choose wise, choosing wisely. Choosing wisely is super duper important. I, I feel like those are very high yield. Uh, that's always a good thing to, to, to review. What about beers criteria versus the start and stop guidelines? What are the differences? What are the same things? So beers criteria uh, was one of the first things uh, recommended. Um, one of the first uh, lists, it was, and it started off as just expert opinion, right? This is back in the 90s. And it was just basically a bunch of experts sat around, geriatric experts basically sat around and said, we should stop these medicines, they're harmful. It was not evidence-based really until 2012. So I remember even in medical school, I had an attending who said, Beer's criteria is garbage because it's not evidence-based. It's just a bunch of experts sitting around think, giving their thoughts without any evidence to back it up. 2012 guidelines, now 2015 updated recommendations. And I think 2015 is the most updated. Uh, I didn't check if there's anything after 2015. But 2015 guidelines uh, have not really changed much from the late 90s. Um, I'm not going to obviously read all of the Beer's criteria potentially inappropriate medication use in older adults. Those are online. Again, they, there's a card. But really, you should just think about and how I learned it and how I think about it and I learned it in residency and how I think about it is really classes of medications. So anticholinergics are always, 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 always tricky. Always tricky, right? Because anticholinergics have significant side effects, right? Confusion, uh, uh, dry mouth, severe constipation, um, a lot of anticholinergic effects on the C, uh, 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 anticholinergic effects on the CNS, uh, leading to some toxicity and a lot of a lot of issues, including potential for falls, potential for uh, drug reactions, and they first generation antihistamines and antihistamines in general are some of the most common. Um, and then for sedation, people or dizziness, some people get will get meclizine. For sedation or for anxiety, some people get hydroxyzine. Uh, so you have to be careful. Like promethazine as well gets used a lot. So you really, really have to be careful about those medications. And on the beers criteria, there's even a strength of recommendation and the quality of evidence to support their use. Um, I'm not going to go through them all, um, but there's a ton. For example, like nitrofurantoin, uh, macrobid, uh, which gets used all the time. Uh, in geriatric patients with UTIs that I see all the time. And again, you have to worry about two things on those. Well, three things, really. Number one, if they have less than the creatinine clearance of 30, it doesn't work. It doesn't even get in the urine, okay? But number two, there's significant, significant side effects of nitrofurantone, especially if you're using it a lot. Um, it's more of with chronic use, uh, with chronic UTI use, but even uh, short-term use for older people who don't clear it, uh, you get significant risk for pulmonary fibrosis um, and peripheral neuropathy, et cetera. But so you got to be careful with that. Um, again, alpha blockers for hypertension, not recommended, really only for BPH. But again, you have to be really careful about the side effects for that. And again, I'm not going to go through the whole list, but Beer's criteria, it's more about grouped in classes. Okay. And uh, PPIs are on there, for example, testosterone's on there, sliding scale insulin, which by the way, sliding scale insulin is complete dog poo. So switch all your, don't give anybody sliding scale insulin that's an old person or even in general, like basal bolus, do smarter treatment. I know sliding scale insulin is easy, but then you're just chasing it. You get hypoglycemia, hyperglycemia issues. Uh, bad, just bad. Uh, NSAIDs, obviously, uh, which is tricky because this is one where when I kind of review my own patients, medication lists, right? Uh, NSAIDs are frequently uh, a contributor to what I would get flagged at if they looked at my patients, right? So obviously they increase the risk for gastrointestinal bleed, um, but you really, it it reduces but not eliminate the risk if you add a PPI or an H2 blocker. And so 
you know, bleeding, upper gastrointestinal bleeds, ulcers, perforation caused by NSAIDs are in about 1% of patients in the first three to six months of therapy and two to 4% of patients treated for a year. And that percentage of risk for a severe GI bleed goes up significantly with long-term use. So I have patients, obviously, with arthritis, being that they're old and have a need for NSAIDs. And so this is one where, you know, obviously PPIs help, but it reduces but not, does not eliminate the risk. And then again, you're adding a PPI to the list, which is also recommended not to be on a scheduled PPI for greater than eight weeks due to all kinds of issues, including risk for C. diff, uh, bone loss, fractures, risk for pneumonia, et cetera. So again, uh, a, a lot of really, really tricky things when it comes to dealing with arthritis with NSAIDs. Uh, I, I wish somebody would have written a or done a podcast about knee arthritis um, just a couple of weeks ago. Hint, 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 hint. Okay, anyways, everybody li- listened to that already. Okay, so that's the beer's criteria, right? So it used to just be a, a expert opinion. Now there's some evidence basing, backing to it. It's more about the classes of medications on what to stop uh, versus uh, anything else. And uh, really, it's a, it's a really good list. Uh, important to know kind of classes and just be careful. Also, don't use muscle relaxants in old people. It's just a bad idea. Okay, uh, benzos are on there too for people without anxiety and without uh, epilepsy. So when you look at start, start, stop and start guidelines, right, this was kind of made in after you know, a bunch of patients or a bunch of docs were looking around and saying, well, um, right, we instituted this because beers doesn't have a starting criteria, right? It's just stop these inappropriate medicines, but are we missing things? Are there things that we should be starting? And then uh, had some other, you know, things. And it's not just, they try to put like some stop criteria. The stop criteria list is a lot of um, organ specific. Uh, they go by like uh, review of systems type of uh, groupings, like CNS, musculoskeletal, et cetera. Um, and, and so they have a bunch of different indicators. And so when you look at the start and stop criteria, they've got 65 things to stop, 65 drugs and situations to stop, and 22 things to start. Okay. Um, the There's a huge overlap in the stop criterias. They have a couple of interesting ones like uh, in the cardiovascular system, the stop criteria has you know loop diuretics. For dependent ankle edema with no clinical signs of heart failure as something to stop. Uh, loop diuretics as monotherapy for hypertension. Thiazide diuretic with history of gout. So there's some very specific things that are really good to review, especially in the cardiovascular system. And th- again, there's a lot of overlap, especially in NSAIDs, especially in uh, uh, anti-muscarinics and anticholinergics. So there's a lot of interaction, a lot of overlap between the two. So I'm not going to, I'm not going to go individually benzodiazepines again on the stop criteria not going to go into these individually now start criteria has some good practice improving topics like bisphosphonates and anybody taking maintenance glucocorticoid therapy or corticosteroid therapy um, making sure that your diabetics are on statins and platelets with coexisting uh, major cardiac risk factors and on metformin and ACE inhibitors for example uh, taking uh a fibro supplement for chronic symptomatic diverticular disease with constipation. Again, I think those are pretty important if you're not doing these things. Uh, very valuable. Cardiovascular system, uh, making sure that people who have had an MI are on a NACE inhibitor, for example. If they have chronic CHF, that they're on a NACE inhibitor. That patients uh, with antihypertensive therapy, if their blood pressure is over consistently over 160, uh, you know, systolic. So I think that there's some value in the start criteria to look at 
making sure that your practice is as updated as possible. But in general, I think it's just basic good medicine. Okay, whoa, we are at the 20-minute mark. So I went over my time today. I want to talk a little bit uh, in the next episode. We're going to do a second episode on this about looking at beers versus start-stop and when you should use each and what you should be looking at and how they compare to each other. Okay, so we're going to do that next episode. Uh, we're going to quick wrap this up. Uh, this has been Dr. Mark List uh, with Primary Care Pod. Uh, email us at primarycarepod at gmail.com inbox. Any questions, concerns, tips, tricks, any things you want to uh, talk about. And uh, we're going to sign off saying you don't have to stay up you don't have to stay up all yeah you don't have to stay up all night stay up to date uh, and i will get back to you next week to finish this topic uh, cuz i think there's some value to it okay thanks bye